Hello, we're glad to have you back with us for this MIMS Learning Podcast, packed with key learning points from our extensive collection of clinical learning modules. We aim to provide you with a clinical update suitable to your work as a healthcare professional, drawing on the expertise of our many medical contributors and speakers. Before we start, I just wanted to remind you that we're not clinicians ourselves, but we do edit clinical learning content every day, and we love to pass on the learning points that we encounter. My name's Pat Anderson, editor of MIMS Learning, and I'm here with Dawn Powell, who's a medical editor on the MIMS Learning team. Dawn and I are going to talk about the challenging issue of chronic fatigue syndrome and its management. And after that, we'll feature an interview with menopause expert, Dr. Louise Newson, and we'll bring you a little bit of treasure, a learning nugget from one of our research briefings. So for this episode, I've picked Dr. Tony Hazel's learning module providing a guidance update on ME and chronic fatigue syndrome or CFS. I'll refer to CFS for brevity. The module provides an update for GPs on the latest NICE guideline, what to do differently in your practice and highlights areas of controversy and uncertainty. In case you're wondering, the evidence behind this guideline was reviewed before the COVID pandemic and NICE has specifically said not to assume that its recommendations apply to long COVID. There's a separate guideline on long COVID itself. Dr Hazel says that the new CFS guidance hit the headlines because of a change in recommendation on graded exercise therapy. For many years, patient groups had argued against this therapy, and NICE has now also advised against it because of reports of patient harm caused by this approach. The guidance defines levels of fatigue and reminds clinicians that CFS is a chronic, complex, multi-system condition that's still being investigated. It says adults should be referred to a multidisciplinary specialist team, although Dr Hazel points out that often waiting lists are so long that patients effectively are managed in primary care. She summarises recommendations about management and says these include people managing daily activities according to the energy they actually have and not pushing through their symptoms, that people should rest and convalesce as needed, even if this means changing their daily routine, and that people should maintain a healthy, balanced diet with adequate fluid intake. Well, thanks for that info, Pat. You mentioned graded exercise therapy and you sort of said it was no longer recommended. I mean, what is graded exercise therapy and why are NICE no longer recommending it? Well, this type of therapy was used in the way of establishing the person's baseline of physical activity and then having them make fixed and incremental increases to their activity or the amount of time for which they were active. The assumption was that people had been become deconditioned by having a CFS and that forcing them to exercise more and more would make them better. But some people found that their condition actually got worse. Okay, I mean, you would think that that wouldn't be controversial, but you sort of said it hit the headlines. So why was this apparently controversial? Well, obviously, there had been this vocal opposition and NICE recognised that and, and went along with it. But then following the issue of the guideline, there was actually some pushback from professional associations and royal colleges And clinicians feared that getting rid of all exercise programmes that had been labelled as graded exercise was actually detrimental because some of those programmes were more personalised and actually could be useful to patients. Okay, so it's a case of possibly throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Now moving on, 
What do we mean when we say fatigue? I mean, how is that different from just usual tiredness and when you've just burnt the candle at both ends? I mean, should GPs just be telling their patients to slow it down a bit? Well, the guidance refers to debilitating fatigue that's worsened by activity, is not caused by excessive exertion and is not significantly relieved by rest. So for clinicians, when they're considering a diagnosis of ME or CFS, four and all four of these following symptoms need to be present. Firstly, the debilitating fatigue. Secondly, post-exertional malaise that's often delayed and is disproportionate to activity. Thirdly, unrefreshing sleep or sleep disturbance and cognitive difficulties. So that's a very different picture to just tiredness. Okay, so thanks for that. I think ME and CFS has got a bad reputation in terms of historically it was not really believed, it got dismissed. And like, I imagine people with CFS probably have had to deal with healthcare professionals or other people not really believing them or being a bit dismissive of them. What does NICE say about giving advice to patients to ensure that they feel supported and just generally believed? Well, the guidance does say patients with chronic fatigue may have experienced prejudice, disbelief or stigma, and that this may have eroded their trust in healthcare services. Dr. Hazel says that this experience has also been reported by healthcare professionals themselves, particularly those who've had fatigue as part of long COVID. So I think ME and CFS are challenging for GPs and other clinicians, but NICE does emphasise a shared decision-making approach in its guidance, and I'm sure people will feel more supported with such an approach. So thanks very much, Dawn, for your questions. In the next part of the podcast, we will talk to Dr. Louise Newson about menopause and HRT. I'm joined by Dr. Louise Newson, who is involved with MIMS Learning for many years as an advisor on our learning materials and is still very much involved as a writer, webinar presenter and chair of our women's health stream at MIMS Learning Live this June. And Louise is a menopause expert and is going to tell us a bit about herself. Welcome, Louise. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for inviting me. First of all, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Yes, so I'm actually a physician, despite being a menopause specialist, so I'm not a gynaecologist. I'm a member of the Royal College of Physicians, so I wanted to do oncology. I've also got a pathology degree, so I trained in Manchester University, and then I went to New Zealand for a year after house jobs, came back, got on a medical rotation in Southampton, then moved up to Manchester, and then had a bit of a career wobble and thought, I'm not sure that I want to be a hospital doctor if I'm going to be a mother and work full time and my husband's a surgeon. So this was in 1999. So I decided to segue into general practice, and which I enjoyed after my registrar year. That's when I approached you guys in Haymarket. And in fact, you approached me because I got distinction in my MRCGP exam and I, you wanted me to write an article. And then I said, oh, that was fun. Can I write more articles? I'm really interested in translating complicated evidence into ways that other people can learn on the job. I wrote a lot then, and then I wrote a few books and became part-time as I had my children as a GP and did a lot of medical education, a lot of writing, and also prescribed a lot of HRT to those women who wanted it and got told off all the time for it to the extent I sometimes had stand-up rows behind the scenes too with my partners. 
And then the nice guidance in menopause, as you know, came out just over seven years ago. And I thought, great, this is actually showing that the majority of women benefit from HRT and it's easier to prescribe. So I wanted to become a specialist. I became a BMS accredited specialist and wanted to set up a clinic and I couldn't do it in the NHS because there was no funding and started to work just one day a week in the local private hospital to help some of my friends get off antidepressants because that's what they've been given for their menopause. And then I also developed a website, started playing with the media and social media, trying to empower more women about what the menopause meant because I thought the media have got it wrong for 20 years. Let's try and help journalists get it right. I didn't realise that effect of working with the media would mean that more women would come out of the sort of skirting board almost, saying, that's me, I've been given antidepressants, I'm suffering, I didn't realise there was treatment, I didn't realise HRT was safe. So the clinic now came from me on my own to me opening a clinic a few years ago and now running a clinic where we have over 120 clinicians working with me, seeing many women a month. But also the clinic is enabling me to finance the free balance app, which has nearly a million downloads, enabling me to do a lot more with education, a lot more with research, and try and put menopause back on the map so we can reduce disease and allow women to have better, healthier lives. So that's a very long introduction, but it's quite a long story, I suppose. Well, I think it's really interesting what's happening now with menopause. Can you talk about the scale of the problem a little bit? It's huge, Pat. We know in the UK there's about 14 million menopausal women. Globally, the figures say 1.2 billion. So it's massive. And I think because it's so big, people are scared. We know that every woman will become menopausal. Most of us, it will be an age-related thing. And part of it is the perceptions that the menopause is a natural process we all go through. You could say it's natural in the way that being in pain in childbirth is natural or having raised blood pressure when we're older is natural. But actually, it's looking at what the menopause means and it's not just about our period stopping or about not being able to be fertile. It's about not having hormones in our body which are biologically active. So a lot of my research is looking at inflammation, this inflammation associated with aging, these inflammatory conditions such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, type 2 diabetes, osteoporosis, dementia, even Parkinson's disease is an inflammatory condition. So looking at how treatment can reduce the risk of these. And this is where, when you look at it as a global health problem, most women globally die from heart disease and dementia. So looking at ways of hormones potentially reducing that risk, that we know they do with heart disease, is really, really important. But it's the suffering of women, actually, in the gender inequality that gets me more fired up. And um, what kind of outcomes are possible? So we know we've got good data that just hasn't been shared with the world, actually. We know that women who take HRT have a lower risk of heart disease. We have, they have a lower risk of osteoporosis. Also, some studies show lower risk of dementia as well. But we also know that women, when they're treated in the right way, their lifestyle improves, they're more likely to stay at work, they're more likely to not have symptoms. And it's really important, actually, that the work I'm doing is about shared decision-making and allowing people to have a choice that perhaps they haven't had before. So 
So I'm not here on this podcast saying every woman has to take HRT or every woman has to, you know, get up and do yoga most mornings like I do. It's like every woman has to have a choice about her life and her future. And if that includes the ability to access evidence-based treatment in the form of HRT, then why should they not be allowed to? So what do you think the main learning needs are amongst clinicians? Obviously, you're very involved in menopause education for healthcare professionals. So what are your perceptions of what the main needs are? Yeah, and I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I was never taught menopause when I was an undergraduate or postgraduate if we can't go back in time, of course, but I look back at all the jobs I did. So I did cardiology, seeing loads of women with palpitations. I did rheumatology, loads of women with joint pains. I did urology, loads of women with recurrent UTIs. I did even a kidney job, you know, looking at women who have dialysis. I did a dermatology job, looking at women with dry, itchy skin. Even A&E, women coming in with total body pain at three in the morning. Why did I never think these women could be menopausal? Because no one taught me what the symptoms were. You know, ophthalmology, people with dry eyes, didn't cross my mind. So I think education is key, but it's not for GPs, it's not for gynecologists, it's for every specialty. Because you could say, well, maybe not paediatrics, but my youngest patient's 14. So it is important, actually that we look at the menopause in a different way rather than just symptoms. We look at it as a marker for future disease, but then we also understand about treatment. And it's also looking at um, nurses and pharmacists. We, we have those working with us in the clinic, and even we have a, a, a physician's associate as well. So education for healthcare professionals is really, really crucial, as well as educating women and actually anyone that knows a woman, so that's everybody, isn't it? So would you have sort of two or three perhaps key learning points that you'd like to pass on to GPs and other clinicians? I think one of the things is once you see the menopause, you can't unsee it. So having an awareness of what the menopause means and the perimenopause, so the time before the menopause when hormones start changing, what potential symptoms are, how hard it is to actually diagnose sometimes and knowing that people with other diseases can be menopausal too and not every menopausal symptom is due to the menopause you know I think looking in a very holistic way I think remembering shared decision making is crucial in this really putting patients in the centre and empowering patients to make the decision that's right for them as part of our learning as healthcare professionals I think is paramount you know, the rest about treatment choices, about HRT, about risks and benefits, that would all fall into place once you've got the building blocks. And I think seeing the menopause as a time in a person's life where we can make them the healthiest to reduce disease is really important because I know a lot of my work, people are getting quite obsessed and saying, well, she's resulting in so many women coming to see us asking for HRT, it's awful. Yes, it does create a lot of work, but actually going forward, it's transformational medicine that's going to reduce burden on the NHS going forwards. So looking at the potential benefits of getting it right now is really important. Thank you. Are there new management options in the pipeline? What we do now is prescribe body-identical hormones, which is really important. So they're very different to horses' urine, conjugated equine estrogens that were in the WHI, the Women's Health Initiative Study. 
And we don't really prescribe the synthetic progestogens. We prescribe body identical progesterone. And that's really important. That's been really transformational for the way that I practice because it's a lot safer. We do prescribe testosterone for women who have reduced sexual desire despite being on HRT. Our data is showing us that other symptoms such as mood, energy, concentration, mental health symptoms improve. So you could think about testosterone as a new treatment, which is just another hormone, of course. There are lots of treatments. You just Google menopause treatments and you come across with menopause shampoos and supplements and face creams. And, you know, just for transparency, I do no work with these companies, nor do I work with pharma in any paid way. But they're not treatments, really. So I think new treatments, we have to be careful. We've got established treatment. It's like a new treatment for hypothyroidism. Why would you do that and just give them the hormone that's missing. So I think we have to remember the basics. And I, this is where my pathology degree comes in because if you look at the basics, if you look at papers from 20, 30, 40 years ago, you can see how important our hormones are. We've just forgotten about them because we've been scared away from HRT. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. That was really, really interesting. Now, at the time of broadcast, a new book will have come out that you've written. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about the book? Yes, it's um, called The Definitive Guide to the Perimenopause and Menopause. So it's um, quite a meaty book. It's hardback. And it's my third menopause book. And you might think, goodness, isn't one enough? But this book's enabled me to write a lot. But it's not just about menopause or perimenopause. Actually, it's got about hormones. It's about PMS, what hormones do. I've also weaved in quite a lot about myself, why I do what I do. But also I've got voices from other people and other experts. So, for example, the exercise section, we've got Joe Wicks talking about why exercise is important. In the nutrition section, I've got Dr. Rupi, who you might know from the doctor's kitchen, who's writing about that. The workplace, I've got Liz Earl talking about what it's like to be a midlife woman running her own business. And then I've got a lot of patient stories as well. So, again, learning from not one well, of patient, but women's stories, we touch on all sorts of areas in the book, including there's an area of people who haven't been listened to before, so women from minority groups, women who um, have addiction or eating disorders, women who've had FGM, women who really haven't been thought about with the menopause. So, so it's quite, there's bits of it that are quite raw. There's a lot about mental health as well. So I'm hoping there's something for everyone. It's a sort of book that you can dip in or out of, or you can read in the entirety, of course. I've referenced a lot through it, so there's a lot of academic references as well. So it's a huge amount of work to the book, and this is, has been a huge amount, but I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with it. I'm quite proud of it, and I just hope it helps people, really. Thank you. And finally, we're looking forward to seeing you at MIMS Learning Live on the 9th of June and you'll be chairing the Women's Health Morning, Women's Health Stream and menopause and mental health is, is going to come up as part of that stream and is that something you're looking forward to is kind of spreading the word about that issue? Yeah, honestly Pat, that's the most important part I think of the work that I do. We were looking at our data recently and 98% of women who come to the clinic have some mental health symptoms. Even actually in the book in my opening introduction I talk about a man I met called Peter whose wife sadly was a lawyer and was 49 and was misdiagnosed as treatment resistant depression and ended up taking her own life and when I spoke to him I said I really want to do more and provide a legacy because 
we see lots of women who are suicidal in the clinic. And we know it's related to their hormones because they've been given many antidepressants, often quetiapine, often lithium, sometimes even ketamine seems to be given more frequently now. Um, when we give them hormones, they, they come back and say, this is me, I'm back. This is incredible. Why didn't I have this before? I'm not saying every woman with a mental health disorder is their hormones. Of course I'm not. But there are those that haven't been thought about. We've done a lot of training. We've just written an e-learning module with the Royal College of Psychiatrists. We've done a lot of training with psychiatrists and mental health teams. And they're really realizing what's going on. We're doing a lot of research as well with various universities in this area. And this is huge when we look at menopause and perimenopause, but also younger women with PMS as well, these hormonal imbalances. If your brain doesn't work, it doesn't matter what your body's doing, does it? So I think mental health, mood symptoms is so important. And I hadn't realized until the volume of women that I've seen here in the clinic. Well, thank you, Louise. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us today. Keep up the good work, spreading the word about menopause symptoms and, and management. We look forward very much to seeing you in June. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to it too. So thanks so much for that. For this episode's learning nugget, Dawn and I are joining Sangeeta for a discussion of something very close to home. Hi, Sangeeta. Hi, Pat. So in today's nugget, I wanted to talk about a research letter that was published in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology about allergic contact dermatitis. It was covered in February's Dermatology Research Briefing by Dr. Suchitra Chintapalli. In the US, about 20% of children are affected by allergic contact dermatitis, and studies have shown that contact allergy is common and affects around 25% of the population across Europe. The US study did patch testing on over 600 patients over six years. And they found that the youngest children had the highest positive patch test rate compared to older children. And the most common allergens were hydroperoxides of linalool, limonene, nickel, methyl isothiazolinone, and cobalt. I think these are useful data because the study looked at children, while most studies on allergic contact dermatitis tend to focus on adults. Okay, well, thanks for that info, Sangeeta. I mean, isn't there allergic contact dermatitis or tautology? Because the term contact dermatitis does kind of imply there's been an allergic reaction. Not really, because contact dermatitis can be caused by direct contact with exogenous agents in the environment, which are not always allergens. There is irritant contact dermatitis and allergic contact dermatitis. Now, irritant contact dermatitis is caused by the toxicity of chemicals on the skin, which disrupt the skin barrier and may also excite an inflammatory response, while allergic contact dermatitis corresponds to a delayed type hypersensitivity response and the skin inflammation is mediated by antigen-specific T-cells that have been primed by previous exposure to the same allergen. Okay. From my own personal experience... Whether it was an allergic reaction or just an irritation, I have worn enough cheap jewellery to know that nickel can cause a reaction and generally I'm better off not wearing metallic jewellery if I can't afford the expensive stuff. But what about the other allergens you mentioned? Where are they found and how can they be avoided? So according to Suchitra, linalool and limonene are naturally occurring fragrance compounds, which are found in a wide range of household products like shampoos, cleaning agents, and they're usually used for providing scent. And linalool is actually found in over 200 plants like citrus fruits and lavender. 
and limonene is also found in citrus fruit peels. Methyl isothiazolinone is widely used due to its antimicrobial properties, so you'll find it as a preservative in personal care products. So as you can imagine, all of these compounds are difficult to avoid. Though I doubt touching a lime or a sprig of lavender would trigger this condition. I think it would be more likely if you were exposed to higher and concentrated forms of these compounds. It must be difficult to advise patients or parents to avoid ingredients that are so widely used. The MIMS learning module on allergic contact dermatitis shows that there are requirements for labelling dozens of fragrances as they can cause a lot of contact allergies. Three particular compounds called lyral, oak moss and tree moss were in fact phased out from 2020 for this reason. So I think compounds as they become known are added to the patch testing series that clinicians can refer patients to. And in the long term, if manufacturers know that products are causing a lot of reactions and consumers therefore don't want to buy them, there will be change. Okay. I mean, this discussion reminds me of a study that was um, referenced in a January 2022 respiratory research briefing. In that study, Patterson et al. report that everyday products, specifically those containing volatile organic compounds, which I think basically means sprays or aerosols and air fresheners, may be associated with an increased asthma symptoms. In fact, on the basis of these findings, the authors called on the UK government to introduce a traffic light system on household products to ensure consumers know what's in the products and know what the risks are. I mean, so I think going back to what you said, Pat, the idea of such a system would be to give further clarity to information that manufacturers already have to provide. That's one step in the right direction. I think eliminating compounds that are potential allergens seems like quite a long-term process. So where does that leave clinicians now? If they encounter patients with these symptoms but cannot identify the cause, what advice can they offer them? Well, our module advises that individuals with persistent contact dermatitis should be referred for patch testing. Parents might be possibly thinking about washing powder or soap and shampoo, but maybe they might also want to think about household cleaners and whether to eliminate or change those. I think overall there has been a drive towards greener products that contain fewer potential allergens and irritants. But for the moment, if a clinician did come across a patient with unexplained symptoms, they should advise the parents to do their research so that they can take measures to minimize, if not completely eliminate, exposure to these irritants. Thanks very much for this discussion and for joining me, Dawn and Sangeeta. Thank you to you two for spending time with us. We'll be back next time with a special episode for you concentrating on cancer. This will take the form of an interview with cancer surgeon, Dr. Robert Uzo, who's well known in the USA as an expert in urologic oncology. And the special episode will cover the changing perception of the disease, screening and diagnosis, and the growth of personalized medicine. So do join us then.